this morning, chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. As we continue on through our study of the gospel of Luke and coming near the end, this is the penultimate chapter, the chapter before the last chapter. And this, of course, is still in the passion narrative we've been looking at now for quite a while. Passion narrative just as a a way of referring to the story about the sufferings of Christ. The word passion at its most basic level, root meaning, refers to suffering. And this is a story about the sufferings of Christ to make a way of redemption for us, to purchase our redemption, to make a way of salvation and a new relationship with God. What's been striking me as we've been going through this is that Jesus, Jesus is suffering a real suffering, right? This isn't a tale. This isn't a, a fable. This isn't mystical. It's not allegorical. His sufferings were real. They weren't fake. They weren't a fabrication. And they occurred in a real context. They happened at a real time in history. They occurred in a real place. They occurred with real people as actors in the story and as witnesses to the story. So the Gospels, and Luke included, of course, is recording in real time how Jesus redeems people. There's not a lot of explanation, right, about what this means for us here. Jesus talked about that earlier in the Gospels. The apostles, as they're preaching in the book of Acts, will explain the significance of all that we're reading about now. Paul and Peter and John and Jude in their letters, James, when they write their letters, they are explaining the significance of what happened in the sufferings of Christ. But I want us to remember as we're working through this passage, as we're walking through Luke, that we are reading history. We are reading a, a historical account. We are observing what is happening to Jesus and applying that to our doctrine, applying it to our faith, applying it to our practice of living out the Christian life. Now, where are we in the story? We've been working through this now for the past few weeks. Where are we in the story? We've crossed over from what we typically call Maundy Thursday, the Thursday of that last week of Jesus' life, into Good Friday. Uh, During the overnight hours, Jesus had been arrested. Of course, he had been betrayed by Judas in the garden. He had been arrested, taken to the high priest's home for questioning. He had been interrogated all night, been mistreated by... Uh, the Jewish leadership all night. And then early in the morning, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, met and they pronounced their, their verdict. They, they arrived at their, their verdict of guilty. Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Now, the next step in the process of putting Jesus to death, because that's what they were seeking to do, right? We've read several different places where the, the Jewish leaders were, were seeking to put Jesus to death. They were seeking to destroy him. The next step in that process is to bring Jesus before the Roman governor. And because time is of the essence, they are moving quickly. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 23, verse 1, and I want to read to verse 25. Then the whole company of them, that's referring to the Jewish leaders from the previous verse, after the Sanhedrin had met and convicted Jesus. The whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. 
But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they, were, they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Again, very historical passage this morning. We're going to use the flow of the passage as our outline. There's three scenes happening in this passage. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus is at his first appearance before Pilate. Then in verses 7 to 12, Jesus makes an appearance before Herod. And then finally, the very last, verses 13 and 25, is Jesus' second appearance before Pilate. So we're going to use those, those three, that, that logical movement, that logical flow to kind of be our outline this morning. So let's consider Jesus' first appearance before Pilate in verses 1 through 6. After, again, the Sanhedrin had rendered their guilty verdict against Jesus, they took him to the Roman governor, whose name here is Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate served as the Roman governor of Judea from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., and his main priority, among the many things he did, his main priority was to keep the peace. That's what the Romans wanted more than anything else. This is the period of the so-called Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace, the era of Roman peace. The Romans wanted nothing more than peace out of their, their provinces. But the Jews despised Roman rule. And so it was not uncommon for minor in, in, in insurrections or, or riots or mob violence uh, a stirring up of the people to, to occur. In fact, during Pilate's tenure over the, the, the province of, of Judea, we could characterize that period as a period of ongoing tension and violence between, really, the Jewish people and, and, and Pilate, sort of a, a response, a, a violent response to his rule. And Pilate, Pilate often responded to these incidents, these incidences, with a heavy hand. He would, he would suppress uprisings with excessive force. And so, of course, that made the situation worse, right? Such brutality sort of exacerbated the situation. It stirred up even more the Jews' hatred for Pilate and for Rome on a broader scale. Now, Pilate did, however, enjoy a cooperative relationship, maybe even a symbiotic relationship 
with the Jewish aristocracy, many of whom held positions on the Sanhedrin and including the high priest Caiaphas. In fact, Pilate and the Sanhedrin worked together to maintain law and order in Judea. And because of this, this symbiotic relationship, they both mutually benefited from this alliance of political convenience. Pilate's main job was to keep the peace, whatever cost. But Pilate also had other responsibilities, including the collection of taxes and tolls, the disbursement of public funds for, for public projects, and the administration of justice. And that would have included hearing cases and deciding punishments, including capital punishment. Now, Pilate normally resided at the governor's palace in the town of Caesarea Maritima, about 55 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. But he would regularly travel throughout the province to hear these cases and administer justice. During the Jewish feast, in particular, Pilate made a point to be in Jerusalem because that's when, of course, the Old Testament requires Jews to come worship at those, those specified Old Testament feasts in the city of Jerusalem. So you have all these people coming into the, into the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's swollen in terms of population. The tempers are, are kind of flaring up. It's sort of a nas- it's sort of the J- July 4th, if you will, of, of ancient Israel. Passover was sort of the July 4th. Time when people were feeling great about their history, feeling great about God's salvation, wanting this sort of this independent spirit kind of brewing up. And so this would have been the time when tempers could have really flared and things have gotten out of control. So Pilate is there probably with multiple Roman guards, detachment of the, of the Roman army, there to sort of keep the peace. And this is when the Sanhedrin brings Jesus to Pilate. Now, why would the Sanhedrin have to do this? We know that the Romans allowed the Jews a limited degree of control, local control, over civil and religious matters. And Jesus' case seems to fall in line with that principle. Remember, why did the Sanhedrin convict Jesus? What did they convict him of? They convicted him of blasphemy. They convicted him of saying that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. Even though he was, they didn't believe it, and so they accused him and convicted him of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is a theological or religious charge. This should be something that the Jews should take care of of themselves. This is sort of an intramural matter. This isn't something that really ought to rise to the specter of the Roman governor. But remember that in Jewish law, blasphemy requires the sentence of death. The punishment for blasphemy is death. But one of the things that the Romans had done by occupying the area of Judea, occupying the Jews, was they stripped away that power of capital punishment. So Jews could not put any of their own to death. The Romans were the ones that had to do it. So if the Jews were going to execute a lawbreaker, they needed the Romans to do it for them. And so the Sanhedrin then brings Jesus before Pilate so they can make their case against Jesus. Pilate alone can hear Jesus' case. He alone is the one that can render the verdict and set the ball in motion to put Jesus to death. But there's also a sense of urgency here behind what they are doing. Now, for starters, the Jewish leadership hates Jesus. They hate him. And so they want to put him to death as quickly as possible, just out of their own hatred. But remember also that Jesus is popular with the people. That's the reason why they haven't taken action up to this point. They feared the people. They feared that if Jesus were put in this situation, that the people would revolt against them. 
that Jesus would, that they, they would be thrust out of power. They would lose their influence. And so by bringing Jesus to Pilate quickly, they can sort of stem the tide of, of popular support that might turn the tables in Jesus' favor. The third thing that makes this whole process quick is because this is on Friday. The next day is the Sabbath day. Lawbreakers were not allowed to be executed. Cases could not be heard. And so if they can't execute Jesus on Friday, they now have to wait until Sunday, which is an extra day, which allows the popular support to kind of brew in Jesus' favor, and the Jewish leadership could lose their momentum to put him to death. The fourth reason why they are so urgent, the reason why they met so early in the morning when the day began, was because Roman governors only heard legal cases in the morning. So the Sanhedrin had to meet early enough to make their decision and get the case to Pilate in order for him to be able to put Jesus to death that very day. And so that's what they do. They bring Jesus to Pilate in verse 1. And in verse 2, they make their accusation. They make three specific charges against Jesus. First, they say in verse 2 that they found Jesus stirring up disloyalty against Roman rule. We have found this man misleading our nation, they say in verse 2. And they go on in verse 5 to reiterate the fact that, that Jesus stirs up the people, right? He stirs up the people in Judea. In fact, he's been doing this in Galilee, far to the north, all the way down to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is, is stirring up the people. He is misleading the nation. He is encouraging a rebellious spirit among his fellow Jews. He's playing up this anti-Roman sentiment. He's fostering a climate that is conducive to revolution, right? This all happens all over the world. When, there's, when the people are stirred up, it leads them to action. So they're claiming Jesus is stirring the people up, leading them to this rebellious, this rebelliousness. Jesus is going to lead this, this violent insurrection. He's going to lead a, a military movement. And so they are casting him as a threat to Rome. And his influence is so great because, again, it's from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's the breadth of the, of the ancient territory of the Israelites. He's not just isolated to one village or to one cluster of villages or even one section of the province. He is a threat nationally. He is a threat all over the place, all of all the occupied territories under Roman rule. There is no place untouched by Jesus' sedition. That's the first charge. He's misleading the nation. The second charge, it says in verse 2, that he forbids giving to giving tribute to Caesar. He's forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar. Again, that would undermine Roman rule. The Jews paid taxes to Rome. That was part of the, part of the benefit of Rome ruling over these people. And so they extracted the, the, the taxes out there. They were very heavy-handed with their, their payment of taxes. taxes. And the Sanhedrin here is saying that Jesus is, is undermining that. He's forbidding them from paying taxes. Third, the third charge in verse 2 is that the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of claiming to be the Christ, or again, the Hebrew word, the Messiah. And as I have mentioned many times, I won't go into it again, the word Messiah refers to a king, a Jewish king. In other words, they are presenting Jesus as a rival to Caesar, who is their present king. If Jesus were a, had claimed to being a king, he could demand the Jews' loyalty. He is a, he's a Jewish king as opposed to a Roman king. And by demanding the Jewish loyalty, it would cause them to support Jesus instead of Caesar. 
Again, they're casting Jesus here as a revolutionary and magnifying his threat to Roman rule. Now, let me make a couple of observations about these charges. First, I want you to know the the bait and switch that the Sanhedrin makes, right? They've shown some deception here. Remember, what do they accuse Jesus of? They accused him of blasphemy. They said that he claimed to be the Christ and the Son of God. Again, that is a religious or a theological charge. But that's not what they present to Pilate, is it? They make no mention of blasphemy here at all. Because Pilate would not have cared if Jesus was blasphemy or not. It is beyond Pilate's consideration. Beyond his interest at all. This is, as I said earlier, an intramural debate for the Jews to figure out among themselves. But again, the Sanhedrin saw this as a capital offense. Jesus needed to be put to death. Pilate was the only one that could do it. And so what they do is they take that charge of blasphemy and they recast it in a political or civic way. And by doing this, we really see a window into their heart, do we not? We see a window into the, the motivations of the Sanhedrin. They do, we've already seen this, but it bears repeating. They do not care about the truth. They do not seek to honor God. They simply want to preserve their power and their influence. Their refusal to hear and believe and respond to Jesus reveals their hardened hearts. Reveals their hardened hearts. Not only to Jesus, but to the God who sent him. The second observation I would make here about their charges is that they're just simply not true, at least not in the way that they presented them to Pilate. First, the charge of misleading the nation. Jesus didn't mislead the nation. Jesus didn't lie to the people. He didn't deliberately stir up something that was not true. Jesus taught the truth. He told them the truth because he is the truth. He called them to hear the truth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He called them to hear the truth and to respond to the truth and to submit to the truth. He wasn't stirring up political revolution. In fact, we've seen throughout the Gospels that whenever whenever the people interpreted Jesus in this way, he either spoke against it, he corrected it, or he totally dissociated himself from it. If people responded in that way, it's because they misunderstood him And Jesus took actions to undo that misunderstanding. Jesus did not mislead the nation. He told the truth. Secondly, the second was just an outright lie, right? Forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar. Jesus said in chapter 20, verse 25, what did he say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things, render to God the things that are God's. There's a whole little bit. They even tried to trap him in that. They asked him this question. And with the intent of trapping him, and Jesus gave the perfect answer. He did not tell them not to pay taxes. He told them, if it has Caesar's image, pay it to Caesar. The third one, the fact that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ or the Messiah, the divinely appointed king of the Jewish people whom God sent for them. Now, this accusation was actually true, but the Sanhedrin purposefully misrepresented it. The Sanhedrin portrayed Jesus as a rival to Caesar, one who was, in, who was working to incite 
a violent response to Caesar, a violent rebellion, a military revolution that would usurp from Caesar the lands and the peoples that he claimed for himself. Now, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture says that that is true. He is sovereign to Caesar. And at some point, Caesar must and will bow his knee to Jesus. But the Sanhedrin sought to juxtapose Caesar and Jesus as rival kings battling head-to-head in that moment for national supremacy. But when John records this incident, and Jesus is questioned by Pilate on this matter, if he was the Christ, Jesus responded that, yes, he is in an absolute sense. He says in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My, servant, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am king of all kings and lord of all lords. Yes, I am sovereign over every earthly ruler. But now is not the time that I'm going to go mano a mano with Caesar. This is not that time. If it were, my angels would have come, my servants would have fought, and we would have done this thing the way that God ordained it to be. But that's not what God sent me here for. My kingdom is not of this world. He was bringing his kingdom in to this world to rule over the world, to conquer the world. But this is not a matter of Caesar's concern at the moment. Jesus came to establish his kingdom. He came to call people, sinful people, to repentance and faith. Jesus has no interest in going toe-to-toe with Caesar now. That day will come, but it's not imminent. It's irrelevant to Jesus' purpose now. So the charges are made. Caesar is hearing, or excuse me, Pilate's hearing all this. And after hearing the Sanhedrin's accusations, Pilate questions Jesus for himself. And while he doesn't necessarily dismiss the first two charges, he focuses on that last charge, right, in verse 3. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds positively. He responds affirmatively. You have said so. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah of Israel. In fact, you can read more about this conversation or interrogation in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. Jesus says there he is the king of Israel, but his kingdom is not of this world. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, that Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What does that mean? Jesus is standing before Pilate He's being examined, and Jesus made the good confession. What he's saying here is that Jesus is telling the truth. Amidst the lies and the deception and the false pretenses and the ulterior motives of the Sanhedrin, Jesus told the truth. He made the good confession. Remember that Jesus' hands, or Jesus' life, here is in the hands of the civil magistrate. His life is in Pilate's hands. If there's any motivation to not tell the truth, this would have been it. But Jesus honored God. He bore witness to the truth because, again, he is the truth. And in bearing witness to the truth, he's calling Pilate. He's calling the Sanhedrin. He's calling all who hear him to believe the truth and to submit themselves to him. But the Sanhedrin won't hear. The crowd they've assembled won't hear. Pilate won't hear. But Jesus refuses to talk his way out of suffering. 
knowing that telling the truth would lead to his death. Because Jesus told the truth in this moment, we are set free. It was by his truthful confession, his good confession before Pilate, that he has not escaped the situation. He has not free himself from this moment. But he will go to his death so that we could be set free. After hearing Jesus' testimony in verse 3, Pilate renders his verdict in verse 4. And he emphatically announces that he finds no guilt in Jesus. He said to the crowd, the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. The way that the phrasing occurs in the Greek is an emphatic no. The word no appears first in the sentence. No. No guilt I find in this man. And it's the right verdict, is it not? Jesus was innocent of every charge that the Sanhedrin brought against him. Even a corrupt, self-serving, secular political official sees it. Pilate sees it here in this moment that Jesus is innocent. But the Jewish leaders are not satisfied. They're not placated by by Pilate's decision. In verse 5, it says that they were urgent. That word urgent means to apply pressure, to impress to grow strong. They're applying political pressure here to Pilate. It's almost as if Pilate's in a vice grip, right? And they're tightening the screw on him. They're applying political pressure to Pilate to reverse his verdict and to bring it into line with their will. And they make, again, the case, just making it even stronger by saying, it's not just that he's misleading the nation, he's stirring up the people all over the place. He is a threat to national security. He is a danger to Roman rule. And their political pressure works in the moment, right? Because when Pilate hears in verse 5 that he is doing this from Galilee to this place, he asks in verse 6 if Jesus is a Galilean, which of course he is. And when he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean, he realizes, ah, this isn't my jurisdiction. I'm going to send him over to Herod. And again, Pilate in a very self-serving, selfish, politically manipulative way looks to get this case off his docket and make it somebody else's burden. And so he sends Jesus to Herod. That brings us to the next section of the passage, verses 7 to 12. Jesus' Jesus' appearance before Herod. There are a lot of different Herods in the Bible. This one is Herod Antipas. He was one of four sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one you know from the, the Christmas story. He's the one who, when the wise men showed up and they, they asked where the king of the Jews was, he told them, go find where Jesus is and come back and tell me, because he really wanted to put Jesus to death. That's Herod the Great. He had four sons. This Herod that we're here in, in this story is one of those sons, Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died around 4 BC, his kingdom was divided into four parts, and Herod Antipas, well, three of his sons get a, a section of, of the four, And Herod Antipas gets the province of Galilee. And he rules over it for a long time, from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. So he's the one who is in political power of Galilee during Jesus' ministry there. Herod Antipas also, interestingly enough, was the one who executed John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been denouncing um, uh, Herod's divorce from his wife, his remarriage to his sister-in-law, and uh, he just criticized that. And so finally, John the Baptist... Uh, uh, Herod executed John the Baptist. You can read more about that in Mark chapter 6. Anyway, 
Herod, here, like Pilate, is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And again, since he is the Roman ruler over Galilee and Jesus was a Galilean, Pilate assumes that Jesus belongs to Herod's jurisdiction. So he transfers Jesus to Herod to adjudicate the matter. And like Pilate in verse 9, Herod questions Jesus. But in this case, Jesus doesn't answer Herod at all. In fact, in verse 10, we see that his accusers continue to forcefully make their accusations against Jesus. But Jesus refuses to answer. In fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before, that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Herod questions Jesus. Jesus responds with no answer. So Herod and his soldiers decide to mock Jesus, make fun of him. They make sport of him, very much like the Jewish leadership did during those overnight hours when Jesus was interrogated by the Sanhedrin. They treated him with contempt, with disrespect. They mocked him. It says that they dressed him up in splendid clothing. That's clothing that's befitting a king. They were treating him like a king. Jesus claimed to be king. That's what the Jews said. So they dressed him up like a king. And they made fun of him because obviously Jesus was not appearing very kingly in that moment. They dressed him up, mocked him, treated him with contempt. And ultimately, sends, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate's going to make it clear, not stated in verses 11 or 12, but Pilate makes clear in verse 15 what Luke implies in verses 7 through 12, that Herod finds no guilt in Jesus either. Herod finds no guilt in Jesus either. He makes fun of him. He's worthy of sport. He's worthy of mocking. But he's not worthy of death. And so he, like Pilate, initially refuses to order Jesus' execution, and he returns him. To Pilate. That brings us into the last section of the narrative, verses 13 to 25. Jesus' second appearance before Pilate. When Jesus comes back in verse 13, verses 13 to 16, Pilate, for the second time, declares Jesus' innocence. He summarizes the case in verse 14. He says, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So Pilate examined him. The word examined there means a thorough examination. means a serious legal examination. This isn't a kangaroo court. Pilate's running here. Pilate seems to be trying to figure out what's happening, has made a thorough investigation of Jesus, and he's found him not guilty. He should be released. And even in verse 15, he says again that Herod found no guilt in Jesus, kind of verifying Pilate's verdict. But Pilate here is, again, very cowardly and very self-serving because he thinks he can just simply get out of the situation by saying, look, I'll, I'll beat him, right? Verse 16, I'll punish him. The word punish here refers to a beating. I'll beat Jesus and I'll release him. That beating is meant to sort of, Pilate's like throwing a bone to the Jewish leadership. I'll do this to punish him. He's not going to get off the hook completely. I'll do something that you'll find certainly reasonable for the situation, but I'm not going to put him to death. Pilate feels the matter is settled, but the Sanhedrin and their supporters do not. And so they continue to press Pilate to put Jesus to death. Now, I do want to notice here, it did come up earlier in the, in the chapter, but I'll mention it here in verse 18, that by this point, as the, as the, day, as the morning is progressing... As people are waking up, as word is spreading about Jesus, as the Jewish leadership are probably inciting their supporters, there is a growing crowd now more than just simply the Jewish leadership. 
There's a crowd that has been assembled. This is not the same crowd that proclaimed Jesus King as he's walking into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a different crowd because they want something different for him. And they find Pilate's decision here to be unsatisfactory. They, they almost in unison, right? They all cry out together. It's sort of this united cry. They cry out, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Pilate's decision here causes them to want something different. They want Jesus crucified away with him. That away is a reference to death. They want Pilate to put Jesus to death. And notice here that it says that they all cried out together. The word cried out that appears here only appears two other places in the Gospel of Luke. Both times they are demon-possessed men who are crying out with a sort of satanic cry. Jesus appears and the demon-possessed man in both situations are, again, expressing their hatred of Jesus, their opposition to Jesus. This cry here is a satanic cry at the core. They're crying out for Pilate to put Jesus to death, but to release to them Barabbas. Now, Pilate had a custom here of releasing a political prisoner during the Holy Feast, during the Feast of Passover. And in a sense, Pilate is offering Jesus as that political prisoner. Look, it's not going to work to beat him and release him, so let me offer him to them as this demonstration of goodwill. We'll release Jesus. I'll give him over to you. This matter will be done and settled. But they ask for Barabbas, not Jesus. And Barabbas is really a criminal in the truest sense of the word. Luke notes here in verse 19 that he had been thrown to prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. So he was imprisoned for starting a politically motivated, violent riot that was protesting Roman rule. And in that insurrection, Mark tells us, Mark 15, 7, that he committed murder in that insurrection. John 18, 40 calls Barabbas a robber. Matthew says in Matthew 27, verse 16, that Barabbas was a notorious criminal or a notorious prisoner. This is like asking for the worst of the worst to be released. We don't want Jesus. We want the worst of the worst. And the name Barabbas, ironically in Aramaic, means son of the father. And I think that is meant to be ironic on purpose. That was his name. But the Jews are asking for Pilate to release one who is the son of the father, one who had been convicted of and known for crimes. But Jesus, the true son of the father, who was innocent of anything that they charged against him, that one they rejected. And to add even more irony to this situation, the Jews wanted Pilate to release to them someone who was guilty of the very things they charged against Jesus. They were asking for the one who actually did it to be released when the one they were charging of the very same things who had not done it, they wanted him to be put to death. Again, the hypocrisy here in this story. So Pilate, in hearing this, tries to respond, it seems somewhat reasonably, with them in verse 20, right? says that he addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but again, it's, not, it's insufficient. They refuse to listen to him. They demand Pilate to put Jesus to death. Again, they cry, that sort of blood-curdling cry, crucify, crucify him. You can imagine that with hundreds of voices, all in unison, shouting loudly to crucify 
Jesus. They kept shouting, it says. The word that's translated there means to cry loudly against someone. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means it's a continuing act, continuous action. So it's not that they're saying, crucify, crucify him. They're saying it over and over and over and over again, almost as if they are chanting it. Like you would maybe expect at a political rally, right? They're shouting from the top of their lungs, crucify, crucify him. So great is their hatred and animosity against Jesus. Pilate tries a third and final time in verse 22 to persuade the Jews to let him release Jesus. Again, he presses them, right? Why? What evil has he done? What's the justification to crucify him? And then he says again that he has examined him, right? I I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. He's laying out again what he has decided, what he has determined after careful examination. And then he offers once more to punish and release Jesus. But the Jews refuse. Again, it says they were urgent. They were pressing Pilate. They were applying political pressure, demanding that he crucified Jesus. And at that point, Pilate, Matthew says, Matthew, that Pilate washed his hands. He decided what to do what was most politically expedient. There's probably some fear here that the situation is going to get out of control. The Jews may riot. Pilate likes his little plum position as governor of Judea. It's kind of quiet. Nobody really messes with him. He doesn't want his overseers coming and interfering with his affairs or even removing him from his position. So he does what is politically expedient. It says that their voices prevailed. They bested Pilate. Pilate, seeking to keep the peace, gives them Jesus. says that he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate decided Jesus wasn't worth the trouble, and so he chose the path of political expediency. He submitted himself to the people rather than being the leader of the people. He gave them who they asked for. He gave them Barabbas. He delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, I want to think just for a moment about what this means. I want to make a couple of observations about what's happening here and the significance that it might have for us understanding these characters and for us. First of all, Pilate's decision here to release Barabbas and condemn Jesus to death is an injustice of the highest magnitude. It is an injustice of the highest magnitude. Pilate's decision here is self-serving. It's an act of self-preservation. It's an act of cowardice. Why? Because Pilate has already said three times. Did you pick that up as we went through this? Three times Pilate has already declared Jesus' innocence. That he has done nothing worthy of death. Jesus deserved to be released because he was innocent. And Jesus was truly innocent, not just of these charges. He's innocent of these charges, but Jesus is innocent of any charges that could be leveled against him. He's innocent of any unrighteousness. Not only did he not deserve the death the Jews sought, he didn't deserve death for any reason. Remember what Paul says in Romans. The wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. If Jesus had sin, he should die. But if he had no sin, he should not die. He had done nothing to merit death in the first place. And yet Pilate condemned Jesus to death to save himself, to save his position, to save his reputation. 
So we see a clear contrast here between Jesus, the righteous one, and Pilate, the unrighteous one, who acts out of his own self-interest. Pilate commits cosmic treason by offering up Jesus, the king of the universe, the son of God, to death without warrant. Of course, the irony here is that Pilate, we saw this last week with the Sanhedrin, Pilate here presumes to be Jesus' judge. He thinks that Jesus' life is in his hands. But, oh, we've seen that Jesus is the true judge. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Pilate might sit in, sit in judgment of Jesus now temporarily, but Jesus is Pilate's judge, and he will render eternal judgment against Pilate for his injustice. Jesus willingly here subjects himself to Pilate to accomplish our redemption. But Jesus will subject Pilate to eternal judgment as is befitting his lordship over all mankind. And if we are not wise to see Pilate's error, we will sit under the same judgment. Second observation here, we see that the release of Barabbas and the condemnation of Jesus is a picture of the gospel. Right? Barabbas is guilty. Guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, guilty of robbery. He is a notorious criminal whose depravity is on full display. And yet, despite his crimes and despite his bent on evil, Barabbas goes free. On the other hand, Jesus is innocent. He's innocent of blasphemy. He's innocent of sedition. He's innocent of any sin, any accusation that could be made. But he has been unjustly betrayed, arrested, tried, and condemned. He ought to be released, but instead Pilate delivers him over to the will of the Jews. He will be crucified. Pilate has condemned him. So why does Barabbas go free? Because Jesus has taken his place. Now, I don't want to assume here or assert that Barabbas somehow became a Christian and came to faith in Christ either because of this event or something afterwards. But the scene illustrates for us the gospel. It illustrates what Christ has done for us. We could very well be the Barabbas. We are the sinners. We are the guilty. We are the unrighteous. But Jesus is the righteous one. He is the innocent one. He was condemned to die on the cross. And because he died on the cross, he has taken my place. That's what Christ has done for us. Christ has done for us. Really what happened to Barabbas. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ, the righteous one, suffered for us, the unrighteous one, so that he might bring us to God, so that we could have him as our Father, so that we could live in a new and eternal relationship with him. What grace there is in that. Jesus' death here, his condemnation, his suffering is all of grace. Because he was condemned, we are set free. Last observation. Pilate's decision to free Barabbas and condemn Jesus is part of God's sovereign plan to save sinners. Before any of this happened, Jesus, Jesus' Fate had already been determined before the foundation of the world. This is the cup that the Father gave the Son to drink. And Jesus willingly, faithfully, obediently does all that the Father has given him to do. 
And that includes subjecting himself to Pilate. It includes being mistreated at Herod's hands. It includes his sentence to crucifixion despite his innocence. Now, even though God's sovereign plan for Jesus, even though this is God's sovereign plan for Jesus, it does not absolve Pilate or Herod or the chief priest or the Sanhedrin or the Jewish crowd from their responsibility in this miscarriage of justice. But understand that none of these things would have ever taken place without God's consent and sovereign determination. We can take comfort in that. We can take comfort in God's sovereignty. Even though Jesus endured this great trial, his rest and his hope was in God's sovereignty. God's plans and purposes always work out. They are always ultimately for our good. And though Jesus suffered, he rested in God's sovereignty. And because of it, he received his promised reward. Now, disciples of Jesus following his pattern of life, we could imitate Jesus in this way and rest in God's sovereignty as well. Jesus made the good confession before Pilate. He testified to the truth. He submitted himself to God. He endured the suffering all to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel in these facts, in this history, in this account that tells us the truth about what you have done for us. Lord, these things weren't done in a corner. They happened in broad daylight in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They were witnesses. These things happened. And while they were a travesty, while it was a sham, while it was unjust, it was your plan for our redemption. And for that, we give you thanks. We have nothing else to offer, Lord. We have nothing else to give except our thanks and our devotion to you. We want to bow our knee this morning once again. Lord, help us not to be like Pilate, to be self-serving. Help us not to be like the Jewish leaders, corrupt, unjust. But help us, Lord. Help us to bow our knee to you. Help us to receive this freedom that you have purchased for us. Help us to be in awe of grace. Help us to go forward and to live the life you've called us to live and to bear our own cross for the sake of your glory and for your good purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.